Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Let me reiterate what Taylor said and just speak personally and tell you how much I love you. I love this church. I'm not exaggerating that a week does not go by. I mean, there's been hard weeks, but weekly, at least not talk with gratitude about the privilege and responsibility of pastoring Southside Baptist Church. So thank you. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders for they will have to give an account. And then it says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, because that would be no advantage to you. And so I just want to thank you for making pastoring this church a joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the truth of the gospel that we've just sung about. And we pray that you would shape us, mold us, form us, use us. I pray for our senior adults, uh, many of whom can't be with us. And I pray that you'd be near with them even now, but also this week, God, that you would be their portion, that they would not be lonely, that this church family and their families would reach out regularly to have fellowship. I pray for their health, that they would stay healthy. And God, I pray for their faith, that they would be strong in faith. Pray for their hope, that they would be strong in hope. And God, as we move into a week that really will probably be one for the record books, I pray that none of your children would live in fear. May we have rock-solid trust in you. May our feet not be on shifting sand, but on the solid rock, because you're on the throne. Whoever is elected on Tuesday will be elected because of your sovereign will. You are not wringing your hands, but you're working all things according to the counsel of your will. As Proverbs 21 says, the heart of the king is in your hands and you move it wherever you will. You're not concerned. As Daniel 2 says, you change times and seasons. You remove kings and set up kings. And so may we be a confident people. Not in any man or institution or nation, but because we're yours. You're shaking things up so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. And I pray that we'll be stronger because of it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The date was June 6, 1944, and the Allies had finally invaded Normandy. It was called D-Day. It was the decisive battle of the war. The beachhead was established. Everyone knew the allies were the victors. But the final overthrow of the Nazi regime wouldn't occur until May of 1945. After D-Day, there was never any question as to how the war would end. But there was still lots of fighting to be had. There was no way Hitler was going to give in. V-Day was guaranteed, but there would still be fighting and suffering and death and agony. In fact, there was more death after D-Day than before. But the outcome was never in doubt. Friends, the cross and resurrection is D-Day. 
the consummation of all things is V-Day. And here we are in between. And our verses this morning, as we continue to walk through the first three chapters of Genesis, are really helpful in informing what life should look like in between. Paul tells Timothy that when the church gathers, we ought to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to douse you this morning. We're going to read a lot of Scripture together because I want you to really get deep down in your heart two themes that our verses teach this morning that really go through the whole Bible. And so I want you to feel it. I want to overwhelm you a little bit with these two themes. So we're going to do some Bible study today. Let's consider first the battle and then second, the victory. So first the battle, look again at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, and if you weren't with us last week, what he has done is he's deceived Adam and Eve to disobey God. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's really an immediate curse and then a broader curse here. God curses the snakes, snakes in general, but he also curses Satan. And through this curse, there would be a new significance given to the distinct posture of the snake. His life would be a life of humiliation, defeat. He's going to eat dust And there would be enmity between the snake and the woman, but really snakes and all people, right? Only weird people like snakes, (laughs) including Preston Roden, who was on electric this morning. He told me, he emailed me between services, but I said, man, you got to know that pastors set up their email to it. Any Sunday email is automatically archived. We never see them. When I was in high school, a friend gave me a ball python. He was like five foot. I'm not a snake guy. And, uh, but it was a, it was a free snake in a cage and everything. I mean, it's a lot of money, right? If you're into snakes, I mean, I think that's two or $300. I thought, well, I'm not a snake guy, but if it's free, I'll try it out. So had the snake. And one day I was on, on my little bed area doing some homework and doing what you do with pet snakes. I had them on my shoulder. I don't know what else you do. And we can't walk them, can't do much. So he's sitting there and I'm not paying attention and I can't see him and he's moving a little bit. And next thing you know, I'll get a little tight. It's a joker had put me in a chokehold while I was studying. And uh, if you've ever been in that situation, which I hope you haven't, uh, every time you breathe, they just tighten up a little bit, tighten up a little bit. And so I try to get calm and I'm panicking inside. I go and I find a mirror and I knew I could ultimately, you know, manhandle the thing if I needed to, but I didn't want to lose an ear in the process. And so I'm trying to slowly unfold them and finally get them off. And uh, it just deepened the enmity, just deepened the hostility. And he was gone. He's out. See ya. Much to my stepmom's relief. But the enmity here is actually much deeper than our fearfulness of snakes. Not just snakes, but Satan himself. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So the fall here, it brought a perpetual struggle between good and evil. Ongoing enmity between God and and Satan, and the people of God, and the people of Satan, between believers and unbelievers. And this still remains today. Theologians call it the antithesis. 
meaning constant opposition between two different ideologies, two different starting points, two different goals of two different peoples. Right here in these very early verses, we have the beginning of holy war. And I need you to get this down in your bones. I really don't think the church will be faithful or effective without understanding these truths. He says here, there would be constant hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, the godly line and the evil line. And the war begins right off the bat. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Cain, the offspring of the woman, of the serpent, kills Abel, the offspring of the woman. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Right off the bat, you see the war. And listen to John, the Apostle John's commentary on this chapter. 1 John 3, 12 says this, we should, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was of the evil and Cain was of the offspring of the serpents, who's at enmity with the offspring of the woman. And there's this line this distinction, this division, this antithesis that goes all the way through the Bible that I'm afraid not enough Christians get. Let me just trace it a little bit. You have right here the sons of Cain, the sons of Seth. You have Isaac, you have Ishmael. You have Jacob, you have Esau. You have Israel and Egypt. And then you have Pharaoh and Egypt, the offspring of the serpent, at odds with who? Moses and Israel, the offspring of the woman. And that's why the king of Egypt commands all the midwives to kill every son born to an Israelite woman. He wants to eliminate the offspring of the woman. Then you have Israel and the Canaanites. And then you have Israel and Assyria. And then you have Israel and Babylon and Israel and Rome. And all through the Psalms, you have the righteous and the wicked and the two ways to live. And Proverbs are filled with the foolish and the wise. Then in the New Testament, you have Herod, the offspring of the serpent, against the offspring of the woman, Matthew 2, 16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children. In Bethlehem, all the offspring of the woman. And in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Listen to the way Jesus speaks of those who are opposed to him. He says, you are of your father the devil, the offspring of the serpent. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he... Lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. The offspring of the serpent hates the offspring of the woman, is opposed to it, wants to see it ended. Those who love the darkness are opposed to those who walk in the light. There's the world and there's the church. And there is a distinction. James puts it this way, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no middle ground. There's the church and there's the world. And John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're to be in the world. We're not to be, you know, monks and, 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 you know, circle up in our holy huddles, but we're not to be of it very clearly in it, but not of it. There's this antithesis between 
the church and the world. And Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, it it pains me to have to say this, but in coming years, a mark of a faithful church will be that it's hated by the world. And we just need to be ready. Listen to these distinctions in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. All throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5. There's the wisdom of the world. There's the wisdom of God that the wisdom of the world thinks is foolish. Romans 5 says there are those who are enemies of God. That was all of us outside of Christ. There are those who are enemies of God and there are friends of God who've been reconciled by the blood of the cross. There's no middle ground. Enemies, friends. Ephesians 2. There are those who are dead in sin following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And there are those who have been made alive by grace who now follow the prince of peace. Romans 1 is so helpful in this regard. Romans 1, 18 and following says that God has revealed himself. He's made his existence clear so that everyone knows that God exists because of creation. It's clearly perceived by the things that have been made. And there are two responses to that revelation. There are those who submit to God's revelation, and there are those who seek to suppress it. There's no neutrality. Everyone has an agenda. C.S. Lewis said it rightly, every square inch is claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ and counterclaimed by the enemy of lies. No neutrality. Here's what Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. So there are two classes of people in this world, those in Adam, those in Christ, those with Jesus, those against him, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. This is the biblical antithesis, and it starts right here at the very beginning of our Bible, and it goes all the way to the end. Let me read from Revelation chapter 12, verse 2, that speaks of the the birth of the Son, the coming of Christ, and the enemy's posture towards this baby. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Starts in Genesis 3.15, goes all the way to the end of the book, Revelation. And so what we got to see is that we are at war. And so we've got to operate that way. Too many of us want to soften the difference and soften the distinction and lower the boundaries and just be nice. We should be nice and be loving, but we can't be blind and we can't soften what God's word says. Isaiah warns us from doing that. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We've got to realize this life is a battle. It's always been that way. It's just becoming more and more clear now in America. Constant total war, not physical war, not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And here's what we got to get. Do we see those principalities and powers running around? Are they handing out tracts? No. But how do they spread their doctrine? Through ideas. Through their own doctrine. And so what is our posture to be? Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we got to know this. We can't try to blur the line or soften the distinction between the church and the world. We need to be awake. We need to realize there's no neutrality. And so it means we got to have these biblical lenses on at all times, these critical thinking on at all times. Because every songwriter, every TV producer, every teacher, every author, every curriculum writer, every politician, every philosopher, every person is either for God or against him, according to the Bible. Genesis 3 says there's enmity, hatred, conflict. And so we need, to, we need to be engaged, but we need to be engaged with a smile on our face. Why? Because number two, the victory is assured. Look again at Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So we're in a battle here, but victory is assured. D-Day has happened. We're just waiting for V-Day. The offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise his heel. There will come one. We learn right here at the beginning of the Bible. There will come one who will defeat evil. A snake crusher. A dragon slayer. And so really the question from right here is, when will this offspring of the woman come who's going to defeat evil? I think Adam and Eve probably thought it was Cain. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It wasn't Cain. <laughs> Maybe it was Noah. Evil just continues to rise. Remember the Bible, the, the narrative of Scripture, evil continues to rise. And so God judges the whole earth except for one family, Noah. Is it Noah? Is he the offspring of the woman who's going to defeat evil? What, what happens to him? He, much like Adam, indulges the fruit and ends up naked and ashamed. It's not Noah. Then in chapter 12, God calls this pagan. This pagan Gentile, this man whose family worshipped the moon, his name was Abram. And he makes these astounding promises. He says, the whole world will be transformed through your offspring, Abram. Change your name to Abraham, the father of a multitude, and I'm going to bless the whole world. All nations 
of the world, all families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And so now we're, we're reading this story and we're waiting now for this offspring of the woman who will defeat evil, crush the snake's head, but he'll also be an offspring of Abraham who's going to bring worldwide blessing, all nations. And then we learn in these promises to Abraham, he would be a king. Flip over with me to Genesis 17, still in that Abraham narrative in the midst of these promises. And he expands them here in chapter 17, verse 6. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember, it was a command to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Now we have a promise to Abraham, you will be fruitful. Not only that, though, I will make you into nations, not just one nation, but nations. And kings shall come from you. So we learned early on, we're waiting now on a king, a king who's an offspring of the woman who will defeat evil, a king who's going to come from the offspring of Abraham, who's going to bless all the nations. And this promise is just reiterated with Isaac and then Jacob. Flip over to Genesis 35. Verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Way before there was any king in Israel, there's these promises that kings are going to come. Flip towards the end of Genesis in chapter 49. The Joseph and his brothers, and notice what God promises in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so we're not even out of the first book of the Bible yet. And what should we be waiting for? We should be waiting for this offspring of the woman who's going to defeat evil, who will be an offspring of Abraham, who's going to bring blessing to all nations, who's going to be an offspring of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And to him will be the tribute of all peoples. He's going to have a, a, a king who has universal rule. Victory is coming. Keep moving now. To the book of Numbers, listen to how Balaam describes this coming offspring of the woman. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, Genesis 3.15. And break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sarah also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This coming king in the line of Judah will crush the head of his enemies. Then we move to the book of Deuteronomy. We're still way before Israel has a king. And in Deuteronomy 17, God lays out rules, commands for the king. And really it just says he should be holy and know the Bible. Pretty much what it says. He should be set apart and he should copy the Torah and he should have it with him. Then we have the book of Judges. Again, no king and the nation feels it, right? Because that's a really dreadful book. And what's the refrain in there again and again and again? 
In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Then you have the book of Ruth, the romance story where that stud Boaz comes and redeems this woman. And you know, the whole point of that book is the last about five verses where there's this genealogy that shows from Boaz ultimately comes the line of David. And why is that important? Well, it's important because the promises God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so now we know that the offspring of the woman who will defeat evil will also be an offspring of Abraham who will bless the nations, who will also be the offspring of Judah, who will have the peoples obeying him, who will also be an offspring of David, who will have a kingdom that will last forever. Psalm chapter 2 is written by David. Let me read verse 6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Coming king who will defeat evil, crushing his enemies. Psalm 72 is also this royal psalm. It's a messianic psalm. It's about the coming king in the line of David. And listen to verse 4. May he, this king, defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Genesis 3.15. Verse 8. May this king have dominion from sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow down before him, Genesis 49, 10. And his enemies lick the dust, Genesis 3, 14. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. There's that word, Genesis 49, 10. To him will tribute come. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations, there's Genesis 12, serve him. Then Psalm 72, verse 17, God had promised Abraham a great name. God had promised David a great name. May his name, this coming Davidic king, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. Told Abraham, all the nations of the world be blessed in your offspring. All nations call him blessed. Could go on forever. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is God's favorite Bible verse. And we know that because it's the most quoted chapter in the whole New Testament. It's really important. You'll recognize it as, as I read it. Psalm 110. Again, David, David writes it. And David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Well, hold on. David's the king. There's no human above David. So who's he talking about? He's talking about a coming king, the Lord of Lords. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So not only is this coming one a king, he's a priest. In the Old Testament, you didn't mix those. There were no king priests. Well, this coming one will be a priest, but not a priest in the line of Levi or Aaron. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. ESV has a footnote because this word is the same word in Genesis 3.15 as head. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Then you have the prophets who tie all this together and paint this picture of this coming offspring of the woman, this coming son of David. It's what we sing about at Christmas, which is why we ought to sing Christmas music all year round. Can I get an amen, Amanda Weems? Because <laughs> this is who Jesus is. Matthew 1.1, how does the New Testament start? Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. It's who he is. He's the king who will defeat evil and bring blessing to all nations. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. But notice what Genesis 3.15 said though. It said this royal king will have his heel bruised. He'll crush the snake's head, but he will be wounded, which is ultimately about the cross. This royal offspring suffered and died crucified. He's the king, but he's also the suffering servant. Think Isaiah 53, crushed, smitten, stricken, afflicted, seemingly defeated, bruised. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. His heel was bruised, but he rose victoriously. He crushed the serpent's head. That's what he did at the cross and resurrection. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what effect did this have on our enemy? He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. What imagery we have here. He takes his weapons away. <laughs> Through the cross and resurrection, he disarms them. Well, why? Well, what's one of the main ways the enemy attacks us? It's through accusation, right? He is the accuser. It's through those fiery darts. Well, through the cross, our sins have been forgiven, taken away, forgiven and forgotten, nailed to the cross. And so what can he say to us? Accused though he want, doesn't matter. I know one who's taken care of all my debts. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Jesus says in John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, if it's by, Jesus says, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me. The kingdom of God has come. It came in the first coming of Christ. The strong man has been bound. Because of the work of Christ, Satan is bound so the gospel can go forth to the nations. Jesus has been given all authority. Matthew 28, 18. As one author says, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus constituted a revolution in the spiritual government of our world. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's where he is. It's what he's doing. We were formerly enemies, now made friends. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is reigning and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus wins. Therefore, we win. Victory is assured. So how should we respond to this battle and this assured victory? Well, briefly, six ways. First is probably the easiest and the most fun. First, shoot snakes whenever you see them. <laughs> Say, what about the good ones? We, we came from Central Texas and we would talk about this and there's more snakes there. And, uh, well, what about the good ones? We don't want to, you know, we don't want to make the ecosystem imbalanced. The only good snake is a dead snake. Shoot them. Second, trust and submit to the high king of heaven. If you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that's your first step, friends. Turn from your sin, turn to the victorious king. Third, for believers, realize the war we are in. We need to wake up to what's going on around us. We need to have faith that the Bible's true. This thing is a thoroughly supernatural book, and so we need to have eyes wide open. The offspring of the serpent is at constant and perpetual enmity with the offspring of the woman. Fourth, watch less TV. Kill the idiot box. Now, I'm not saying throw it away. Don't kill it. We watched a movie last night. But I think increasingly we need to be self-critical about our screen time as adults and definitely as kids. Because why? Again, if we believe this book and there are enemies and there are principalities and powers, what is the main way they want to influence you and change your thinking and move you and, and massage your affections and deaden your conscience? It's through media. And so just ask yourself. Probably most of us could, could afford to watch less. And so ask yourself, is the content I'm inputting, do I input more content that ultimately comes from the offspring of the serpent or more content that comes from the offspring of the woman. Fifth, engage in the war. Get engaged. Pursue Christ. Submit every area of your lives to him. Get off the fence. Fight 
sin, disciple others, take ground for Christ, be fruitful, get intentional in discipling your kids, raising God-fearing children, have dominion, get to work. And sixth and finally, be optimistic. I ought to have more smiling Christians than frowning Christians. I get it. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. It's pretty ugly right now in our little corner of the universe and, and universal human history. And it may get even uglier, probably will. You know what? It may be ugly for a century, but we ought to be people that are praying and planning and working for the century after that. You know why? Jesus is on the throne and he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. So we've got work to do. Starting in Genesis 3, we know there'll be this ongoing battle, but we're assured certain victory. We win because he wins. This offspring is King Jesus. And by extension, us, because we're in Christ. Our lives are hidden in his. We win because he wins. Paul tells the church in Rome that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're victorious because we serve the victorious king. Victory is mine. It's assured the tomb is empty. Your sins are forgiven. You're filled with the empowering spirits of God. Jesus has all authority. He has no rivals. He must reign until the end. The kingdom of God will advance. As Daniel puts it, this kingdom is this stone made without hands that will break in pieces all the kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever, just like God promised David. Do you believe God's promises? He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. The great commission will be fulfilled because this king has all authority. It's a guarantee, and he promises to be with us. The nations are his heritage. Psalm chapter 2, and the ends of the earth, his possession. D-Day is a done deal. V-Day is coming. Let's be faithful till that end. Pray with me. God, I pray for your people this morning. First, that we would wake up to the spiritual forces of evil that are all around us that don't even want us to think about them. They don't want us to think that they exist. They would prefer to us believe the lie that we're just strolling along going through the motions when those motions are actually headed somewhere, either toward you or away from you. May we be awake to that. Grant us Christ-centered intentionality in all that we do. Wake us up. And God, give us confidence, confidence that our work for you will be fruitful. You've promised it. We have your spirit that we will get to work knowing that victory is assured. You've promised us that. We know the end of the story. We know the end of the book. May we live in light of it. Yes, sober-minded and serious because life is war, but with a smile on our face because we know where it's headed. Give us spirit-filled optimism based upon the cross, resurrection, and ascension of your son. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. Pray because of Jesus' work. Amen.